The text for this morning's sermon comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 2 through 16. Paul writes, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Our theme for the week of prayer that is today closing has been going hard after the holy God. Last week we looked at the holy God and today I want us to think about going hard. Why and how? A.W. Tozer, in this little book, there's a chapter named following hard after God, from which the phrase going hard after God is adapted. Tozer wrote that book in 1948, and it's just as relevant today as it was then. He's got a quote in there that I want to read to you to show you where I'm coming from this morning. After showing that Moses and David and Paul and all the hymn writers of history have been people who, having met God, now thirst for God with all their heart, he writes, How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ, and we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists 
that if we have found him, we need no more seek him. This is set before us as the last word in orthodoxy, and it is taken for granted that no Bible-taught Christian ever believed otherwise. Thus, the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject is crisply set aside. The experimental heart theology of a grand army of fragrant saints is rejected in favor of a smug interpretation of Scripture which would certainly have sounded strange to Augustine and Rutherford and Brainerd. So Tozer rejected what he called a false logic which says once you've found Christ, your search is over and you don't need to seek him anymore. And I reject that logic with Tozer also. And say with him these words in its place. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. But not so easily pursued by those easily satisfied religionists. Nevertheless, justified in the happy experience of the children of the burning heart. Or as St. Bernard says, we taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feed upon thee still. We drink of thee, thou fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Matthew Henry is right when he says, wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he said that, what he meant was become Godaholics, not alcoholics. The evidence that you have God is that you want more of God. The Spirit is not deadening, He is addicting. Continued indifference to growth in grace means you don't have grace at all. This morning I want to show you two things, if I can, from Philippians 3. One is, why do I say you must pursue God, you must go hard after Him, and how can you do it? I want to persuade you from Scripture that it is essential, and I want to give some practical help for how to go about fulfilling the duty. First then, why? Why do I insist that you must go hard after God? or which is the same thing, go hard after Christ. There are six reasons given in this text, Philippians 3. I'm only going to look at four of them with you. The first two that we'll look at are reasons that look forward to the reward that come from the pursuit, and the second two are reasons that look back to the impulses or the causes that give rise to the pursuit. First, then, we must go hard after Christ in order to know Him. Verse 7 and 8. 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul went hard after Christ, forsaking everything that would hinder his pursuit of Christ for this reason, that he might know Christ. And note verse 7 is past tense. I counted it all rubbish. That's probably referring to his conversion. But verse 8 is present tense. He continues to renounce everything that hinders his getting to know Christ and pursuing after him. Now why? Why this continuing, ongoing pursuit after the living Christ in the heart of Paul? Answer, because the knowledge of Christ surpasses everything else in value. The evidence of your conversion is whether or not you are a Christian hedonist. We can't get away from that idea. We're going to bump into it again and again and again in Scripture. Christian hedonists always go hard, passionately, hedonistically after the highest value which here, very simply, is the knowledge of Christ. And every other pleasure the world offers is garbage in comparison. And only hedonists, therefore, will go for Jesus. They sell everything joyfully for the pearl of great price and for the hidden treasure in the field. We go hard after Christ Because to know Him is joy, and because not to want to know Him belittles Him and brings us into misery. Paul says in Ephesians 3.18, he prays for us, May they have power, O Lord, to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and breadth and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. There is more of Christ to know than what you and I now know. And Paul prays earnestly that we would reach it in our pursuit of it. You who claim that He is your pearl of great price. You who claim that He is your treasure chest of holy joy, yet do not go hard after God are caught in a contradiction that cannot go on. You must go hard after Christ or eventually surrender your claim to own Him as the Lord of joy. Can't have both. When a man falls in love, he is driven by an inner compulsion to know his beloved. Therefore, he goes hard after her and spends time with her. When a student admires a teacher and has a favorite professor who is very wise, whom this student loves and whose wisdom he cherishes, and that teacher announces that the class can come over to his house, that student goes 
I had a teacher like that in seminary, and he put on the outside of his bulletin board outside his office one day that next semester he's going to offer a class at his house entitled Hermeneutics for Eggheads. And I just signed up. Zoop. I had no idea what he was talking about. I knew one thing. I loved this teacher. This teacher was wise. I'd been there one year, and I knew this was the man who had the goods. I'll go to any class, and if it's in his home, I'll especially go, because there I might know him better. The first reason to go hard after Christ is to know him. Second, we must go hard after Christ to confirm our justification. Justification is this. Big theological word. Maybe not all of you are real familiar with it. Justification is the wonderful work of Almighty God freely to forgive our sins and give to us in our unrighteousness the gift of God's righteousness that we might be accepted before Him on the judgment day. And that's good news. The second half of verse 8. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as refuse that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice the present tense again. I am counting all things as refuse. I am forsaking them. I am now pursuing Christ. Why? To gain Christ and to share God's righteousness. That's my goal as I pursue Christ. To gain Christ, to share the righteousness of God. What does it mean to gain Christ and to share His righteousness? Paul is writing as a Christian. Make no mistake about it. He's writing as a Christian. His conversion lies way in the past. He is pursuing Christ and through Christ to be apprehending Him And having God's righteousness. It is before him. He is after it. Surely then to gain Christ would mean to gain acceptance with Christ when he comes or when we die. Paul is speaking as a Christian and looking into the future and doing what he must do to gain Christ and God's exoneration at the judgment day. What must he do? He must pursue Christ. He must count all things as refuse and go hard after Christ. But wait, you say. Justification is by faith. Verse 9 is very clear. The righteousness that Paul pursues is based on faith. It is not our righteousness. It is God's righteousness. But he is pursuing it. 
As a Christian, he counts all things as loss in order that he might gain Christ and be found in him, not having his own righteousness. Conclusion. The faith which justifies is the faith which counts all competing values as rubbish and pursues Christ. If justification depends on faith, and if forsaking the world as refuse is a necessary prerequisite to enjoying the benefits of justification, the lesson is plain. Saving faith is not merely a decision for Christ in the past. Saving faith is an ongoing preference for Christ over all values. Therefore, we must go hard after Christ in order to confirm our justification by faith. There are two more reasons in this text for why we should pursue Christ These two look now to the past, not to things we are after in the future, but to what is it back here that has given us the impulse to do it. The first one is in verse 12. They're both in verse 12, but here's the first one. We must go hard after Christ because we are so imperfect. Not that I have already obtained, writes Paul, or am already perfect, but I press on To make it my own. We have to go hard after Christ because we are so deficient. Our deficiency as we look at it drives us to pursue Christ's help. A failing student ought to pursue a special tutor. Nearsighted people ought to pursue an optometrist. People with strep throat ought to pursue those antibiotics right to the end of the ten days, not give up. Alcoholics should pursue a support group. Young apprentices who don't know much about how to do the job ought to watch their master all day long, every day, follow him and copy him in everything he does. Not to go hard after Christ means either... That you don't trust him to be able or willing to change you. Or that you want to stay imperfect. And in either case, he is greatly dishonored and you are lost. The final reason why we must go hard after Christ is that he has gone hard after us. And indeed by faith, has laid hold on us and made us his own. Verse 12 again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. Now that sentence explodes the false logic that Tozer set himself against in 1948, which I'm setting myself against this morning, namely that once we have been apprehended by Christ, we don't need to try to apprehend him. If he has laid hold on us, we don't need to press on to lay hold of him. 
Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reasons exactly the opposite. He says that I press on to gain Christ because Christ has gained me. His prior work to lay hold on me in my sin is why I strain like an athlete forward to lay hold on him. The irresistible grace of Christ overcoming Paul's rebellion and saving him did not make him passive, it made him powerful. Paul's conversion was not a cage to enclose him, it was a catapult that shot him into a trek after Christ. And you know you've been converted when you're flying out of that catapult after holiness. The best commentary on Philippians 3.12 is Philippians 2.12. It's a great way to remember it. 3.12, 2.12. You have to include verse 13 in there too. This is a very familiar verse, but I wonder if you've connected it to 3.12. We'll start in the middle of the verse. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Does it say, so that God will go to work on you? It says, for God is at work in you. Which is exactly what verse 12 says of chapter 3. Go hard after Christ because Christ is at work in you. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. For the Lord is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. The reason the Bible can make our salvation dependent on our pursuit of holiness without turning us into self-reliant legalists with no assurance of salvation is that the Bible makes the pursuit of holiness dependent on the sovereign work of God in our lives. That may be the most important sentence of the morning. I'll say it again. The reason the Bible can make our salvation dependent on our pursuit of holiness, I did not say a success in that pursuit unto perfection. The reason the Bible can make our salvation dependent on our pursuit of holiness without making us self-reliant legalists with no assurance of salvation is that it makes the pursuit of the holiness dependent on God and His sovereign, prevenient, irresistible grace in the heart of the believer on which we can rest. The most fundamental reason then for why you must go hard after Christ is that Christ is in you, moving you to go hard after Him. Is He not? Now we turn from why to how. And I want to try to focus all of our attention on three steps in verse 13, which tell how Paul pressed on. Let's read that verse together. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Now, we'll stop right there. 
There are three things that Paul says are part of his pressing on in verse 12. First, it has to do with the way he views himself. How does Paul view himself? What's his self-image in this verse? Literally, it says, I do not regard myself to have obtained. Paul's pursuit of Christ rises out of a profound dissatisfaction with the way he is. Would you agree that that's a fair inference from this verse? Paul's pursuit of Christ rises out of a profound dissatisfaction with the way he is in his spiritual life. Could it be, you know what I think, could it be that there's a connection in our day between the ocean of people who are telling us to think more highly of ourselves and the lack of earnest pursuit of God in our churches? Desperate, craving, hungry, thirsty, pursuit of Christ. Could those two phenomena in our culture have anything to do with each other on the basis of this text? The first step in going hard after the holy God is to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual condition and your spiritual attainments. Stand in front of the mirror of the word and recognize that you have not arrived and be dissatisfied. The hearty admission of spiritual imperfections is the catapult into the pursuit of Christ. Let me pause now to clarify something here because every time I say those kinds of things, I talk to people afterwards and hear things like this. So I'm going to say it all for you so you don't have to say it to me. People come to me and say, Piper, you are utterly out of touch with real people. People do not need a negative appeal to think more about their guilt. My God, Piper, what are you doing? The malaise of American culture, Piper, inside and outside the church is an epidemic of guilt and bad feelings about ourselves. Don't tell people that what they need is to develop more dissatisfaction about themselves. Do you really think that the people who sit before you like themselves? End quote. No, I don't think that. My guess is most of you think you're klutzes. But I think that real, God-honoring, humble guilt is extraordinarily rare. I think that 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent of our bad feelings about ourselves come right out of pride. For instance, you go to a dinner party and you dress what you think is appropriately and you get there and you dressed wrong. Everybody else is black tie. And then you spill your coffee on the rug. And then you sit down to the table and haven't a clue what to do with those five forks. (laughs) And then you try a joke on the group and nobody laughs. And then when you're leaving, you shake the hands of your hostess and you say, 
Thank you for the evening, Jane. And her name is Mary. And you get home. How do you feel about yourself? Rotten! What a klutz! I can't do anything in life. My life is such a mess. I'm not even going to go to work tomorrow. Read the Bible. What good's that do? Look at my life. I ask you, where does that come from? Does that come from a deep sense that the holy God has been dishonored by your life? Or does it come because your pride has been piqued? Your image as a cool, competent human has been shot. And it hurts. When I plead with you, and I do, to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life, I am calling for something rare. It is not common to feel rotten for sin, for an offended holy God whose my life has, has brought into disrepute. Oh, we feel bad how we brought ourselves into disrepute and everybody dislikes us. Sure, that keeps us awake at night. That makes us depressed and immobilized. God, I'm asking you to feel worse that you possess so little of Christ and love His glory so little. Not that you love yourself so much that you get all upset when you make a fool of yourself. The first step in going hard after God is to feel bad about the right things. And most of us feel bad about the wrong things. Develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life. Second step in going hard after God is to forget those things which lie behind. You see that in verse 13? I take that to mean that anything in your background that hinders your zealous pursuit of more of God. Don't think about it. Now, be careful. Don't take that to mean that memory is not an important weapon in the arsenal of the Christian. Oh, how many spiritual battles I have fought with the weapon of remembered mercies. The psalmist call us to remember God's mercies. The point of the text is not, don't look back, the point of the text is only look back for the sake of pressing forward. Don't let nostalgia replace hope. Memories of successes can make you smug and self-satisfied and cut you off from the pursuit of Christ. Memories of failures can make you feel miserable and paralyzed and cut you off from the pursuit of Christ. Therefore, give thanks for past successes humbly. Confess past failures humbly and turn from them and go hard after the living Christ in 1984 and see what new He might do in your life. One more step and then we're done. It's right here. Paul strains forward to what lies ahead. He gives his own best illustration of what he means by straining forward. In 1 Corinthians 9.25 he says... Every athlete, and I know this is what he has in mind because two of the key words, prize and obtain, are both in these two verses. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one who beats the air. I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after having preached to others, I myself become disqualified. The way to go hard after God in 1984 is like an athlete. Do you have an athletic tone to your spiritual life? As you look at your spiritual life in the mirror of God's Word, you say, I'm an athlete. I doubt that there ever has been a Christian who reached heights of knowledge and joy and obedience without plan, discipline, and self-denial. God does not promise His riches to aimless people, does He? He lived, this Paul of ours, with spiritual goals and He controlled His passions, pummeled His body, and went for broke. I want to give you an illustration here in closing of Jonathan Edwards. Not all of us should do what what Edwards did, but you need an illustration of how to take the athletic metaphor and apply it to concrete situations in your life in the pursuit of Christ. Here's what Edwards did. He carefully observed the effects of different sorts of food, writes Sereno Dwight, his biographer and selected those foods which best suited his constitution and rendered him most fit for mental labor. In this respect, he lived by rule and constantly practiced great self-denial, as he did also with regard to the sleep he got. He accustomed himself to arise between four and five in the morning. In winter, he spent several of those hours in study, which are commonly wasted in extra slumber. In the evening, he usually allowed himself a season of relaxation in the midst of his family. Whether you follow Jonathan Edwards in the rigor of your diet and your sleep, and I commend that to you, I urge you on the basis of Paul's example in Scripture, become an athlete spiritually in 1984. Set yourself a goal to know more of Him, to love more of His wonder, to grasp more of His will, make a plan of prayer and study and worship, and then go for it with all your might. I close with this summary. Develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual attainments. Put out of your mind everything in the past that hinders your pursuit of Christ and His holiness. Three, strain forward like an athlete towards those goals in 1984. Because imperfect as you are, it is God who is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. We do not run in our own strength.